Love the enthusiasm. And the youthfulness. And the smiles. A few of them were very serious, though. They, they forgot to smile while they were worshiping and singing. But they had the hand movements down. The action, so now that was great. Thank you so much. We're so blessed to um, to be in a congregation where we where we in love and enjoy children, and we want our children to be raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And we like to think, by God's grace, we are raising little worshipers here at New Covenant Fellowship. Thank you also for the efforts of our Sunday school classes and teachers. There's some fruit. The teaching that goes forth and the love that you shed upon them. Thank you. And speaking of uh, kids and and love, um, if you missed Friday night's drama skits, you missed a real treat. It was just some good, wholesome fun. Special thanks to Michaela. Only Michaela could bring these kids out of their shells and um, memorize all those lines. And it was it it was really a joy to see kids that we know here worship with on Sundays to just come out and be those little actors and actresses was outstanding. Good, wholesome fun. So thank you for that night of entertainment to the glory of God. And also just another while I'm uh, thanking people just running on and on and on while I was riding up the um, driveway to come to church this morning i'm just always so grateful for the the grandeur and the beauty that we have here and special thanks for all of those that take care of the grounds um a lot of work goes into these grounds and we have freshly mulched flower beds i think the rank family and maybe bushcrafting crew or anybody they could recruit to help them with that and of course our regular groundskeepers of corky tom and butch and Anybody else that throws in, thank you so much. It's beautiful. It's good stewardship for God's property. And so just driving here this morning, I was blessed by that. Well, we're back in Matthew chapter 5. And as you know by now, Matthew's gospel is about the king and his kingdom. And that's the message that Matthew has been driving home to us. There is a king. His name is Jesus. And he has a kingdom and he is establishing his kingdom here on earth because heaven has visited earth. And we are now in chapter five. And in chapter five, of course, the king has made himself known after approximately 30 years of of obscurity. Now he's making himself known. He has some followers. He has a few disciples around him. He has a lot of people who are very curious about his power And the way he speaks, just the way he speaks, demands a presence. And the things that he says seems to grip people's heart. And, of course, the miracles uh, have people fascinated and they're wondering what could he be all about. And some people have realized that he is about the true God and others are still wondering. But he is on the side of a mountain. This is called the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus begins to get very serious about The message of the kingdom. And he is sharing with those uh, within earshot, especially his little band of disciples, what it means to be in the kingdom. What it would look like if you took a person characterized by kingdom principles. And he's preaching the sermon and we know it as the Beatitudes. We've looked at those Beatitudes. 
And this morning, our beatitude is found in verse 7. And it is about mercy. So chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 7. Jesus says to the crowds, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The merciful. Are you merciful? Would people can characterize you if I mention your name, if you mention my name, would the, uh, would the idea of mercy come to mind? Somebody really wants to get a hold of you, Mama Suggs. <laughs> so mercy. Um, before I, well, what is mercy? Everybody knows what mercy is, but before I define what mercy is, first of all, where is the source of mercy? So let's just say someone is characterized by being a merciful person. Or maybe you have received lots of mercy in your lifetime, a lot of compassion, a lot of kindness. If so, what is the source? How would you go about becoming a merciful person? Well, of course, Scripture says that the the bottom line or the source of merciful acts comes from God. And the avenue or the channel or the path that they travel through in order for us to be a merciful person, I would say, come through the other Beatitudes, the other building blocks or stages of what it means to be a member or a citizen of the kingdom of God. And so a person that has characterized himself, themselves as merciful would also be a person that's poor in spirit because they know before God they have nothing in them to make themselves pleasing before the sight of God. They have received mercy from God. And it would also be a person that mourns over their sin and how displeasing it is to God. It would be a person that understands meekness and, and they're self-controlled and they're teachable. And they want to, they want God to sanctify them. They welcome the rule of God and the kingdom of God in their hearts. And it would be a person that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. They want to be in right standing with God. And so these foundational principles give birth or the fruit that comes out of this would also be the characteristic of mercy. You would find a person that wants to be helpful to others. A person that would see their, their uh, need and want to act in that. And so the main source of mercy, it comes from people, comes from God because they have received mercy. And that's kind of the, the motive behind being merciful if, if you can't think of any good reason on your own why you would want to be involved in others' lives, then the main root would be because God has been merciful to you. Therefore, go and do likewise. So it's not something that we can successfully conjure up on our own. We can have compassions, but the root of the mercy comes from God. And some might say, well, what about the unsaved? Don't the unsaved uh, also perform acts of mercy? Absolutely. And I would say the source of that is God because every human being is created in the image of God. And so even unsaved people do things that accurately reflect the image of God at times. So the source of mercy is God. But what is mercy? 
And what's the difference between mercy and grace? Because they're, they're so intermingled sometimes we and we even use them interchangeably. I mean, were we saved by grace or what did, did salvation come through the mercy of God as a result of mercy? Of God, which is it? Well, I think grace has practically and healthfully been defined as uh, receiving something that is undeserved. You're, you're being given something or you're receiving something, getting something that you did absolutely nothing to deserve. So the idea behind grace is that it's undeserved. And of course, if you're saved by grace, that means that uh, you didn't deserve the salvation God has given you as a gift. It's just his grace that has brought that into your life. And then I think mercy has also been defined helpfully and practically as not getting what you do deserve. And the idea is that we all deserve the wrath of God for our sins and our transgressions against him. We have violated the divine, holy God. But rather than receiving what we do deserve, the wrath, we receive mercy. Which means we do not get what we do deserve. And I think that's useful and that's helpful. But there's more to mercy than that. Because how do you apply that in your life? And why would Jesus bring this up in this sermon? Well, the actual Greek word means to give help to the undeserved. It means to relieve, offer relief to the miserable. So if you apply that to salvation, of course, we're wretched in our sins. We're miserable in our sins. And Christ has mercy upon us. But if we want to apply that in our lives, it means that we are able to care enough or we want to care enough to involve ourselves, ourselves in somebody's life that needs help. They need some kind of deliverance. They need some kind of compassion. And here's how D.A. Carson differentiates the two. Grace is a loving response when love is undeserved. And mercy is a loving response prompted by the misery and helplessness of the one on whom the love is to be showered. So grace answers to the undeserving and mercy answers to the miserable. So. Mercy cares for the afflicted. Mercy cares for the downtrodden. Mercy cares for anyone that is in a position where they need help out of it. Uh, sometimes you might hear it expressed. You might hear the expression today. My heart goes out to you. And that is the beginnings of mercy. That means there's there's a. There's an empathy there, a sympathy there. There's a compassion there. My heart goes out to you. I care about what you're hurting over, what you're struggling with. And so our heart begins to speak to us. But mercy is not just a feeling of compassion. Mercy also is willing to act. And that's what makes it mercy. Because a lot of us can really feel bad for other people. But that's as far as it goes. But true mercy, birthed out, goes into action. Of course, that's what Christ did for us. So mercy doesn't just feel, but it takes the steps 
to go so far as to try to alleviate that pain. There was a story told of a 19th century uh, preacher. And in that day and age, <clears throat> horses were everything, like kind of like cars now. But horses were not just a way of transportation, but in many cases, they were your livelihood. Most it was an agrarian culture. They were your livelihood. And uh, a person, a dear friend of this preacher's preacher lost his horse. His horse died. And so there was a crowd of sympathizers around them. You know, I'm sorry for your loss because they also had horses and they could see, wow, this poor guy, what's he going to do? I'm sorry for your loss. And the preacher uh, stands in the crown. He says, I'm sorry, five pounds. How much are you sorry? And he takes off his hat to take up an offering. The idea is we we can all sit around and talk about how sorry we are that this has befallen upon you. But mercy actually takes action. How sorry are we? How much do we care? How far will we let these feelings go? And then John MacArthur takes the idea even deeper by applying it to the merciful Christ. He says it refers to the ability to literally get into somebody's skin. Until you begin to to understand and think their thoughts and you're, you're feeling their emotions. You're understanding their pain. And it's more than a, a pressing wave of pity, he says. It's it's an empathizing, empathizing. Hold on now. Too many. Empathizing, empathizing. OK, I, I, it must be typed in there wrong. It's empathizing. It's typed in there wrong. I'm trying to get too many letters. Anyway, it's a deliberate act of feeling their suffering and seeking to relieve it. If you think about that definition, who is he describing really? But Christ. Talk about mercy. Think about Christ. Here he is in, in heaven. The glories of heaven. Perfect peace. Perfect harmony. Happiness. Blessedness. And he, and he takes the form of a man. He puts on man's skin. And he comes down into this broken world. This world that's under a curse. And he has taken on the skin of broken man. That means he's taken on the limitations that we have as humanity. And he's he's in the midst of it. And he's experiencing the brokenness of pain, of sickness, of, of famine, of natural disasters, of the evil that comes out of men's hearts. Just the, the filthiness that we find here. He has wrapped himself and he understands and he gets it because he has been a part of it. So when when we say to the Lord, when we when we talk to the Lord and when we pray about the predicaments we're in and the pain that we're feeling in this life, he gets it. Because he himself has been tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I think that's uh, Hebrews 218. So when we come to him, he knows. And if you say, but my heart hurts, I've been betrayed. He knows he understands. He gets it. He subjected himself to this cursed world. But why? Not just to feel pain, but to come down here in our misery to relieve our pain, to free us from our sin, 
to free us from the curse and the brokenness that this world is under. And Christ is the model of mercy. He's mercy personified. And that's who we want to emulate as we think about what would it mean in my life to be a person of mercy? Am I willing to be involved? Well, if you've read the scriptures, you know that when Jesus wants to teach something very important, he often will teach uh, or bring out a parable or will offer a teacher where a teaching where he presents the truth of what he's trying to teach and then the opposite. So to really hit it home, they'll say, here's what it looks like and here's what it really doesn't look like. We saw that illustration when we were learning about, well, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Give me a picture of that. And then we... We were taken into the temple where we see this Pharisee who is thanking God in his prayers that he is not evil, wicked and as miserable as that poor, cowering tax collector in the corner of the temple who's so ashamed of himself and his sin that he won't even lift his eyes to God. And he's just beggarly. He's asking for anything he can get. The Pharisee's glad he's not like that. And Jesus says that beggar, the tax collector, he's the one that went home. Justified. So there's a picture of what it looks like to be true in spirit, to be poor in spirit. And here's a picture of what it looks like to not be poor in spirit. He offers us this as well to help us understand what it really means to be merciful. So I'm going to read a few of these examples. Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. Jesus... As he reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, of course, meaning Jesus, he said, those who are well Have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And you look at that passage and you think, wait a minute. Did I miss something here? Where did mercy, how did Jesus pull mercy into this scene? What does this have to do with mercy? What's he getting at? He's quoting Hosea 6, 6. And this was a time in the era of the Israelites when their hearts had really grown cold towards God. But they did not stop in offering their sacrifices to God. They continued to obey the rules concerning the sacrifices. And so they would come to the temple, just as the law said, and they would burn, they would Offer their sacrifices to the priest and the blood would be spilled and so forth, depending on the kind of sacrifice it was. And then they would leave the temple. And in Hosea 6, 6, it was when God said, I desire mercy in that sacrifice. What does he mean by that? Their hearts have grown cold. In other words, they were just going through the motions. They were being faithful uh, they, they weren't so cold that they stopped being faithful in their dutiful, some of their dutiful things. But it was only really just to kind of keep God off my back. So, you know, here I am, Lord, I'm in the temple. Here's your sacrifice. I hope you liked it. See you later. 
And God said, that, that's not how this is supposed to work. The whole purpose of the sacrifice, the sacrificial system, isn't just to go through the motions. It's to set your heart on fire for me. It's to put your heart on fire to worship me. It's not just about it doesn't end with the sacrifice. All of that points to something else. And they were cold and callous. And Jesus, the, the ceremonies point to Christ. They point to the true significance of the law. And so the whole idea of the ceremony isn't so that we can just go through the motions and allow our hearts to get cold and say, I did my duty. That's where God says, well, I desire mercy. And we could do this today in, in, in our modern age. We could let our hearts drift from God, but come to church and say, here I am in your presence, Lord, and I hope you're glad that I'm here. And I put my money into the offering plate and I prayed. And not love God. And in a sense, that defeats the whole purpose of being here in the first place, because it's all about God. It all points to God. The, the signs and the ceremonies, the rituals, it points to God. And so when we take God out of the picture, then all the things down here really lose their true purpose, meaning and significance. It's not just about putting money. See, the motive, the heart is wrapped all up in this. And I think one of the beauties of the Beatitudes is it really teaches us our hearts because Jesus is saying, look, this is the kingdom I came to establish. Now, this is what it looks like. This is how we should be thinking. This is how she, we should be feeling around one another and feeling in the presence of God in the world that we live in. And it helps us to know if we're in the kingdom or not. And then if we are in the kingdom, how hot or cold are our hearts towards God? This is radical, countercultural, transformational stuff. It's like you, it's almost like you, you, you give into it, you let God bend you or you get out of the circle. And so God, Jesus pulls this Old Testament scripture into this um, New Testament scenario and what the Pharisees were dumbfounded at is why this guy, Jesus, would be dining with tax collectors and sinners. Because when you do that, you defile yourself. You make yourself unclean. Doesn't he get it that he's going to have to kind of go home and wash himself ceremonially? Who's laughing? What happened? What did I miss? My face. OK, go ahead and laugh. Get it over with my face. I'm used to it. So uh, he uh, what's he doing? Help me out. No, he's <clears throat> so they're really they just can't understand why he would involve himself in their lives. And he says, look, you have Bibles, you have the, you have your scrolls, go home and unroll them and read this verse. And read the context and story behind it and then you'll get it because you're not getting it here. And, and what he's saying is you're, you're so worried about your laws and your rules and staying clean. That you can't even see the tremendous need in these people of God. You don't even see how far they are from God and how much 
They need him. All you can think about is keeping yourself clean. So they're enslaved to the ceremonial cleanness at the expense of the spiritually sick. And the law was never given to keep people away from God. It was given to draw people and woo people to God. And you see how a cold heart, an unmerciful heart, and a self-focused heart can just turn the, the faucet of grace off in people's lives. They missed the whole point. So they are in bondage to a cold, heartless heart that loves ceremony, and that's it. Loves rules, and that's it. And that's what stifles the mercy of God. And God saying, this is the time for mercy here. Here's another one in Matthew 23, 23 through 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So he's not saying that even the smaller laws don't serve a purpose. It's, they're a beautiful thing. Even little tiny great, and greatest detail ceremonial Laws and rules of God are beautiful when taken in the whole context of the purpose and the meaning behind it. But there was never meant to pit some against the others so that we decide which ones we're going to obey and which ones we're going to neglect. And it turns out that they decided to focus on the, the smaller, um, easier rules to keep. They've neglected the weightier matters. You mean the law that God has given us, there's different weights and measures to it. There's different degrees of importance. Yeah. And it can work against each other when we lose the big picture of what the law is all about. And he's saying you lost the big picture. So you're over here trying to, to, to fulfill all these little things and you have totally neglected these huge guns over here. What are the big guns? What are the weightier matters of the law? Justice, mercy, faithfulness. And little law keeping can actually become a huge hindrance to the bigger law keeping. The things that really matter. The little things don't really matter when you... Lose focus of the bigger things. So becoming obsessed with trivial rule keeping can very easily turn us into careless, unmerciful creatures. That's what the teaching, what, what is the enemy really or the opposite of mercy is when we get so involved in keeping our own rules and trying to stay clean ourselves and not. Be cognizant of the fact that there's a whole other world out there of hurting people that are very much in need. <clears throat> Probably the most powerful parable that teaches what mercy is, and I've saved it for last because it's the one that's most familiar to us, is the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're all familiar with that. We know that there's a guy laying in the path, and I'll read it in a second. He's laying in a path and he's half dead. He's bleeding. He's very hurt. 
And a Samaritan comes and he helps him out and he puts band-aids and and so forth and oils on him. But there's there's a reason that Jesus told that specific parable. There's a context to it. So what elicited this parable? Well, if we look at Luke chapter 10 and go back to 25, verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? Don't you love the way Jesus always brings people back to God's word? Like Corky said last week, you know, he actually believes it. He, he has great confidence in the word of God. What is written? How do you read it when you... Unroll the scroll and read the words about it. So the lawyer answered, he said, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus says to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. What does the lawyer really want to know here? The lawyer wants to know, how can I get to heaven? What what do I have to do to escape the wrath of God and and be able to receive the grace of God and have eternal life? How can I escape this? How can I get the mercy that I need to get into heaven? And, of course, the answer was, if you love God and you're you're merciful, you're loving to your neighbors as well. That's how you Get in there. But that's not really what the lawyer is. That's not the answer the lawyer wants at all. The, the lawyer has posed a question. No, he hasn't posed a question yet. I'm not, I'm not there yet. Hold on a second. The lawyer is going to pose a question. And then you're going to really be able to see where his heart is coming from. He doesn't like this answer, even though it's in Scripture and he's read it and he knows it. He's after something else. What he's after is he wants uh, a list of rules. He wants something more tangible. That's too vague. Love God with your whole being and love your neighbor as yourself. That's really vague. Give me a list of rules so I can check them off and know for sure I have done this. Therefore, I have eternal life. So he asked this loaded question. It's a question you're really not supposed to be able to answer. He says, desiring to justify himself in verse 29. Who is my neighbor? See, it's not good enough to just love my neighbor. I need to be able to to check it against rules, laws, whatever. So I know for sure when I've actually obeyed it, then I know I'm going to. Heaven, who is my neighbor? So Jesus answers his question with a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him. Passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, 
he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I came back. And here comes the question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? How are you supposed to answer that? Well, the answer is so obvious. He says, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus again says, go and do likewise. So he brought him right back to what it was. Go and do likewise. So in this parable, Jesus effectively paints a picture. This is what mercy looks like. This is what mercy does not look like. If you're wondering what mercy truly is. What do we find here? Four things John Piper mentions. There's four things right in here. Four dimensions to it. First of all, you see, you notice, verse 33, you, you see a need. You see somebody who's hurt. In this case, the guy is half dead and beaten, robbed. Then secondly, not only do you see, but you respond internally. You have compassion. So rather than like the Levite and the priest who see the same thing and have a different reaction, they are not moved towards that person. They're moved towards their own selfish hearts. Let's get around this person so I don't have to be involved and I don't have to get unceremonially clean. I've got to be careful what I do or how I look when I say that so you don't laugh at me, whatever it was. So that's what they're concerned about. And then third, it responds in practical ways. He sees, he, ha- he feels pity, and he goes and administers the ointments. And he brings relief. The guy's bleeding. He's hurt. And then, fourth, Piper says, it happens even when the person in distress is by religion and race an enemy. Because in Jesus' parable, you have this, this, this mongrel, according to Jewish mindset, this half-breed with half-baked theology about who God is and how to worship him. He's the one that comes to this Jewish person and helps him out. So that's mercy, an eye for distress, compassion that materializes into actions, even if it is someone on the other side of the fence. The priest and the Levite are the example of what mercy is not. And you have to love Jesus' practicality here when he says, uh, who, would you, who would you want to, to walk by you if you were in need? Picture yourself in this. What would you want mercy to look like if you're the one who really, really needs help? I mean, how can you not answer with the right answer or response? That's mercy. All the other two cared about was being ceremonially clean. So, as we look at these passages, we see that the potential hindrance to heart-transforming mercy 
is a coldness of heart, staying in our own little world, keeping ourselves clean and fulfilling enough rules to make us feel like we're right with God to the extent where we shut others out. And then what happens is we grow cold and callous, hard hearted against all of the needs in this world. And that's not what God is after. Mercy is one of the weightier matters. I mean, it's right there in Scripture. It's one of those things that are real. If you're going to neglect anything, if you can't do it all and you're going to neglect anything, don't neglect this. So there's this danger of God's people. There's a danger for God's people to to get focused on the wrong things, to get focused on the trivial things. And you'll notice this in this parable that mercy to be a merciful person is very costly. It can be very costly. It's not always very costly, but it will always cost something. This Samaritan gave of his time. He gave of his money, his his possessions, things that he had on his person for his own travel and his own convenience. He really looked out for this guy. And so he, he lost important things in a sense that perhaps will never be regained the time that he lost. We don't know what he was doing. So mercy often comes at a great cost. Sam mentioned, I think it was um, Keller's teaching about burdens. How do you bear one another's burdens? That's another scriptural mandate. You can't do that without some kind of personal cost. Because if, if you're... Carrying a hundred pounds and you just can't do it anymore. And you need help. You're stopped dead in your tracks. And I'm going to come and help you. I might just take a little corner of it and get a couple pounds of it. Whereas somebody else might might get 90, the other 98. But it's at a cost to me. There's no way I can help you carry your burden without a personal sacrifice. Without giving you something that I have. It's just, you can't do it. And so if we think that we can be merciful and yet stay clean or it not cost us anything, then we don't understand mercy. And I remember when Dwight said that when we had that surprise party for him as he was stepping aside as an elder, um, just really stuck with me. And he started to preach a little bit, but then he backed off. But he, when he was talking about service, of course, he was praised for all the service that he's given to this church. And he said, in essence, if you think it's convenient, you're wrong. The service opportunities don't come at the convenient times. They come at the inconvenient times. It comes at when, and we think, well, how can I help this person with their burden when I have all of my burdens over here? My stuff won't get done if I got to go over there and help them with their stuff. Yeah, exactly. Hard teaching. How is it even possible? Why would anybody want to be merciful and involve themselves in other people's lives? I mean, why would I want to stay here after church and talk to somebody who's hurting when dinner's cooking at home and I could be eating? Well, the thing that can help break through that flesh is because I can become aware of. Of how merciful God has been to me. 
I mean, there's a sense in which we've all been that half-dead, mugged person, dying and bleeding because of our own miserable sin and brokenness. We know what that's like, and we know how good it feels to have the mercy of God just wrap His arms around us and say, you don't deserve it, but I have pity and compassion on you, and I'm going to pick you up out of this bad place and help you along. That's a vision of kingdom living. That's a vision of the kingdom outpost that I hope that we are to the glory of God. A people where much of our society is so individualistic, we we just really are tempted to turn away. And yet, God's people should be the ones that are running too. You want a vision of... Of running to the aid of those that really need help at personal cost. Then remember 9-11. When all of the servicemen, all the firemen, all the police officers. You have this burning building. People are jumping out of windows because to, to keep from getting burned. I mean, this place is dangerous. It is about to collapse. And everybody that possibly can in any way they can are trying to get away from it. And these guys are running into it to help, to, to offer relief. Man, that is a picture of mercy. That's a reflection of the image of God. And that's what Christ does. When we make a mess of ourselves and blow our lives up, he wants to get in there and be hands on and relieve us from the very sources of the things that destroy our lives. That's what it means to be a kingdom outpost. Our fleshly response sometimes might be to say, yeah, but you know what? There's so many hurting and needy people in this world I just can't see where I can even put a dent in it. God isn't asking us to be perfect. He's not asking us to solve every problem. But who is our neighbor? It's maybe the one that's right before us right now. The one that we know about. The one that we can do something about. The flesh will ask good questions. The lawyer asks good questions. He wanted to get out of the true hard work of heart transformation. Love God with my whole being and my neighbors myself? I don't think so. Give me a couple rules that I can check off. Give me a list of rules that I can show the Father of why I deserve to be in heaven. God's not asking us to do it all and He's not asking us to do it with perfection. But He is asking us to do it. And then just quickly, a few questions that come to mind. Well, what about justice? Doesn't it seem like mercy and justice often work against each other? Because some of the people that, well, a lot of the people that are downtrodden and are in need of tremendous help are also those that have been unjust. And that's the reason that they are in this problem. Maybe there's been some criminal activity or there's been a lot of sinful living. What's the balance? Well, Mercy doesn't cancel out justice. Justice is still in a weightier matter of the law. Obviously, God still can, is concerned. He is a God of justice. He's both just and merciful at the same time. It still matters that a transgression has, has happened. The reason that God can be merciful is because the penalty has been paid. 
Nothing's been swept under the carpet here. At a great cost to himself, he is able to be merciful. So they work together. It's just that sometimes God doesn't give us the whole punishment that we deserve. But it's always for redemptive purposes. And there are times in our lives, if you keep that, the big picture in mind, the whole purpose for justice is to bring us to God. The whole purpose for mercy is to bring us to God. So there might be times, just for example, as, an, as a parent, you know, you don't want to spare the rod and spoil the child, so to speak. That's right there in Proverbs. Um, so we have to discipline, we have to execute justice, but there's going to be times where we have an opportunity to also teach our kids about mercy and say, though you deserve this, I'm not going to punish you in that way in order to teach you about the mercy that God has on us. That's another teaching opportunity and that can be applied in many ways. So they mingle together, of course, at the cross, as we sang about this morning in our worship song. How do I know when to exercise one over the other? Is this a time to come down with justice or is this a time to actually be the merciful one? And just love on this person, say, through their sin or whatever hardship they're going through. Now, that is a great question. How do you know how to balance it out? And the answer is you don't really know. There's, there's no book that you can... The Bible doesn't give us answers to every particular situation that we will encounter in life. Though we might wish that we had that. Is this a time for justice or mercy? What do I do here, Lord? It doesn't give us that. But what it does is it, it gives us the scripture's aim is to produce a certain kind of person. A certain kind of thinking that flows out of us because we are worshipers of God and we're looking at ourselves and the world through his eyes. So when we seek after God and we desire to be poor in spirit and mourn over our sin and hunger and thirst for righteousness and be meek, be merciful it, it happens. It's not, not through a list of rules, but by allowing. I like what um, Martin Lloyd-Jones says. We're not meant to control our Christianity, but rather our Christianity is meant to control us. So we don't always get the lightning bolt out of the sky. It's just being like Christ and loving God. And then lastly, a lot of people say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't this verse say that. If you're merciful, then you receive the mercy of God as it works salvation. And what this is really about is Jesus is this is evidence of salvation. So blessed are the merciful. God is looking down from heaven, so to speak, or he's observing our merciful deeds and acts. And he is well pleased because of the fruit that his mercy has produced in our lives. So this is evidence of a merciful God. It's evidence of salvation. It's confirmation of God's mercy in this person's life. As we were studying the book of Jonah this morning in Sunday school, I could hardly sit in my seat as I, re I realized the implications of Jonah and if if, if you're able to come to Sunday school, I just want to invite you. It's great teaching. It's great conversation. Uh, 
And this morning we were ta- wrestling with Jonah. And he's on this ship. And you know the story. And um, he doesn't want to obey God's command to go and witness to the Assyrians. They're very wicked people. And for good reason. It would, it's a very, very hard command for him to do that. They're not like on the best terms, the Hebrews and the Assyrians, by any means. And yet... He, ref- he refuses to go and he flees from God. And I'm just sitting there thinking, knowing what I was going to preach on, I thought, what's the real problem with Jonah? He has absolutely no mercy. He just wants to stay in his own little world. And there's a very dangerous society in a very dangerous city over there filled with violence and paganism. They don't know God. They don't care for God. They're destroying one another and anybody else they come into contact with. And he could care less and he doesn't want to be involved. He only cares about himself. He's he's turned his back on the rest of the world. And I don't know, maybe just wanted to, just me and my God mindset. I don't know. Let me just have my devotions and get close to God and forget what's going on. And God gave that hard command. And what is God trying to teach him? Well, God's going to teach him not to get ahead of the book, but about mercy. It's about mercy. As God sees this society, yeah, they're wicked and they're evil, but they are hurting people and they need to repent and be free from this. We live in a hurting, hurting world and we can sit here and down it and dog it all we want. But God has sent us as kingdom people to alleviate that, to be a light in the darkness, to be the people who care instead of turning our backs and just going on about our lives. This is something that should come out of a heart that obeys that law of loving God with your whole being. And its fruit is to love your neighbor as yourself. D.A. Carson asks, am I merciful or indifferent to the wretched? Am I gentle or hard-nosed toward the downtrodden? Am I helpful or callous toward the backslidden? Am I compassionate or impatient with the fallen? I'm persuaded that should the Spirit of God usher in another period of refreshing revival in the Western world, one of the earliest signs of it, will be the admission of spiritual bankruptcy, the poor in spirit, which finds its satisfaction in God and its righteousness and goes on to be richly merciful towards others. So he sees refreshing revival coming through that poor in spirit, the foundation, and working its way through acts of mercy, where God's people wake up to the needs and start putting Action to the compassion and pity that they feel in their hearts. May we be known here at New Covenant Fellowship at this in this uh, outpost as a people who have not just received the mercy of God, but a people that are merciful to others. May God bless the preaching of his word.